Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Good morning, folks. How are y'all doing? Good. Doesn't, have, doesn't Clement have a nice voice? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, as, as Pastor Janice mentioned, this uh, thing that we'll do for the series uh, over the next few weeks, uh, we'll be exploring this theme of community together as a church community. And uh, we have different stuff that we'll do uh, as community-wide initiatives. But one of the things that you'll see in our service is we have different people. Uh, all of y'all uh, will we'll, you know, do a lottery kind of thing, roll your names and uh, select some names and then get you up here to read uh, the scripture uh, of the day. And so, yes, uh, this is our new series, Life Together. Now, uh, folks, if you've been around uh, early 2020, you're you would think, eh, is, didn't we do this series already? It seems like very familiar. And truth be told, yes, you know, we did this series and if you realize, I even remember uh, we were three sermons in and then we hit March and then we shut the entire church down. Uh, and then as a pastoral team, then we felt uh, the need to address, you know, our cultural moment and uh, we put pause on the series and good gosh, it's been a long pause. And so two and a half years in, uh, now we are back to uh, revisit and hopefully continue complete this series huh? in faith. No more pauses. Amen? In Jesus' name. Uh, but, you know, I think it's significant that we are coming back to this series because it almost feels like, you know, we are getting out of the mode of uh, reacting to the different changes or responding uh, to uh, what we were facing uh, during the pandemic. And no doubt we're still in the pandemic and there's a lot of adjustments that we're going through, not just as a community, but uh, personally. But I feel almost that this series is going to mark... Uh, this turning point for the church where we move from uh, responding to what uh, is in the present to uh, envisioning uh, what is ahead for us as a community in the future. And that is the goal of this community. Uh, this series now will explore, of course, a biblical vision of community, but more than that, we'll talk about you know, what does it mean for us uh, as the city to live out uh, God's call on our community to live faithfully as followers of Jesus in our world, uh, in our time. Amen. Are you with me? Thank you. Now this uh, sermon series uh, title, Life Together, uh, it sounds super, you know, PC and sounds so nice and cute and we have very colorful graphics up. But it's actually, you know, uh, a title of a book uh, written by uh, a German theologian, pastor, uh, spy, and Martha, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this book on community called Life Together. Now, a backstory on this book. Uh, you know, he wrote this book uh, during the rise of the Third Reich. Uh, he's a German theologian and was living in the midst of you know, Hitler's uh, rule. And uh, one of his pastoral impulses then was in the midst of the rise of Nazism and widespread cultural compromise, he felt this pastoral impulse to start a seminary, a clandestine seminary of uh, no more than 100 pastors to live together, to love one another, to grow deep in God's word together, to resist the cultural compromise that was all around them in that day. And that was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in, in, uh, there was this story where um, he was, you know, pastoring this seminary. And of course, you know, anything you do then, you know, that, didn't, that wasn't uh, you know, nationalistic in a way uh, could mean certain death. And he had a close friend visit him in this seminary with a goal of trying to convince him to stop what he was doing and just, you know, pledge over, pledge piety to Hitler. Just capitulate, just give in to a culture that is around you. Stop this work of resistance. 
And so the story goes, uh, he brought his friend to this high place uh, up on a hill. And from the high place, you could see two things. You could see this seminary that he was leading in Finkelwald. You could see the seminary. And on the other side of the hill, you could see a Nazi youth camp where they were training and indoctrinating young boys uh, in Hitler's philosophy. And in uh, an act of prophetic contrast, he said to this friend, he pointed to his seminary and said, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. And it's a moment of prophetic contrast to say that the people of God, our communities, what marks us as a people, must be stronger than the culture all around us. And that is to be the vision that we carry when we think about the biblical community. Oftentimes when you think of community, we think of it purely in the realms of convenience, what's comfortable, do we have chemistry with one another, do we have the same interests, do we bond, do we enjoy the same hobbies. But I'd like to you know, uh, really present a case of biblical community that far transcends that, yes, that's important and that's nice, but the biblical community, if we were to faithfully dive into scripture, we will realize it's one that's immensely diverse. This is, it is not built on convenience or comfort, but commitment. And over and above everything, you know, it is one that is distinct, that is compelling, that is well differentiated from the rest of the world. That is the biblical community. And so uh, over the weeks, you know, we'll uh, explore this theme of community, different topics. Uh, Pastor Jen will be taking a whole bunch. Yes, Pastor Jen will be taking a whole bunch. Uh, now, Today, my, my message is simple. You know, we'll be exploring three questions. First off is this. What is the biblical vision for community? What is the community? You know, when Jesus talks about community, what does he have in mind? Second thing we'll explore is what has happened since Jesus' vision. What has happened since you know, we, uh, that, that passage that we read in Acts chapter 2? What has happened since you know, in a modern culture? And then what are some shifts that we have to embrace as a church community here in the city? Now, uh, if you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Tan come and bring this you know, amazing word about spiritual friendship, and there are a lot of themes in there that we explore in this series. But there was something that he gave to us you know, as a pastoral word uh, at, towards the end of the sermon. He said that people like us you know, who have you know, a great longing and desire for the presence of God, for the fire of God, very often, you know, we, in our pursuit of that fire and the presence, we you know, tend to neglect and forego what he calls relational fireplaces. And he talks about how in the history of the moves of God all through human history, whenever the fire of God came upon a community and the community didn't have this tight-knit interpersonal kind of relationship and health, oftentimes it leads to a kind of disaster. And in very way, you know, when, and in very much sense, you know, when we talk about community, this isn't something that is like a... Uh, you know, a kind of soft topic, and then you had like the hard topic like martyrdom, like revival, and all that kind of stuff. But in, in, in all actuality, community is essential. It's essential to an outpouring of God. It's essential to what it means to pursue the presence of God, the fire of His presence wholeheartedly. And that is what we are diving into over the next few weeks. And so today, my sermon topic is this, the church as the family of God. The church as the family of God. Are you with me, folks? Yeah could use some responses. Are you all awake? Yes. yes. Right. This is a series on community. Come on. Community. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's begin a word of prayer. And hopefully your faces change a bit after the prayer. Huh? <laughs> oh, you look very fierce. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. 
you are why we are gathered here. We are here to meet with you. We are here to encounter you. And we are here to hear from you, oh God. Lord, we thank you for the words of Scripture that not only inspire us, but instruct us as to how we ought to live in our world today. We thank you that whenever these holy words are opened, that God, it is not just an intellectual exercise, but it's a moment in time where we lean in with ears inclined to hear, God, what you have to say. So Spirit, I pray far above what I have to bring today, far above the research I've done, far above the crafting. God, I pray that your voice will be so clear, so heard this day. We incline our hearts to learn from you. We incline our hearts to receive from you this day. So Spirit, I ask that you have your way. Move upon our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Sorry, let me make some adjustments. <clears throat> now, there was a study done uh, a few years ago by two Harvard Divinity students, uh, and the study was called How We Gather. How We Gather. And uh, the study's premise was that millennials, uh, you know, people in my generation, are less religiously affiliated than ever before. And the, church, the church was one of you know, the many casualties of the internet, the advent of the internet, where we had all this connectivity, and people were gradually were growing to be globally connected, but yet locally disconnected. And in that study, it lists uh, six themes, and the themes are community, personal transformation, social transformation, accountability, creativity, and purpose finding. And the study sought to answer the question, how do millennials, and by extension, Gen Z, find fulfillment for all these needs? How do they find fulfillment, social transformation, community, accountability, creativity, purpose? How do they find these things? And what they discovered in the study was that many of these longings that were previously routed towards formal religious institutions were now routed towards CrossFit, SoulCycle, and other mechanisms of belonging. Now, you may not be familiar with what SoulCycle is. SoulCycle is essentially a chain of spin studios. Spin studios is where you go and do spin. Spin is essentially where you ride a bike, but you go nowhere. That is what spin is. I'm not wrong. <laughs> now, SoulCycle, they have this tagline which talks about how they come for the body, but stay for the breakthrough. Uh, and there's this quote that talks about, uh, that I have on screen in this uh, Soul cycle goer person, and she says it's a good workout, but that's only the beginning. Really, what people experience is a sense of release or stress, or new insight and clarity about what's important to them, or renewed commitment to the goals in their life, or an experience of sanctuary amid anxiety and pressure from their job. So it's really an emotional and spiritual experience as well as a physical one. Now, I have another uh, article up about CrossFit, and I think the title of the article is this: CrossFit is my church. CrossFit is my church. Now, CrossFit goer described the CrossFit experience as something as intimate, supportive, in which cheering for one another to meet fitness goals was expected. It is a culture that can produce effects more often associated with church. Now, this CrossFit goer said this, contrasting a CrossFit experience to an experience in church. She said this, there is something raw and vulnerable that happens to you when you go into a CrossFit gym. A workout can bring you to your knees, so to speak. <laughs> now, that's CrossFit. 
Now, honestly, isn't that so true, right? You go to a fitness studio of your choice, a cult of your choice, CrossFit, SoulCycle, F45, whatever have you, and you bond with people. You do hard things together. You sweat it out. There's encouragement. There's accountability. There's motivation. And you see progress. You see bodily change. You see growth. You see physical change. And you experience all of that. And then you go to a life group full of broken, needy people to which you have no chemistry with. And they go, ah, this is so unappealing. And then you go back to your fitness studio. And gradually what happens is that your longings and your desire for community, this passion, gets placed outside of the body of Christ. And gradually the church becomes weak, less appealing and optional. So the question we are asking all through this series is, what does it mean to be a compelling community? Community is not this Christian exclusive idea, right? You see communities all around the world. What is is so distinct about the body of Christ? What is so distinct about being in a fellowship of believers? What is the purpose? What actually happens when we commit to such a community? Now, what's fascinating about the text that we read in Acts chapter 2 is that this community, this group of early believers, were just coming out of a profound spiritual experience. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, we read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon that early church community. And it was a hinge moment in human history where the fire of God used to fall on a sacrifice. The fire of God is now upon every head. And God's presence is not just a theoretical, theological kind of omnipresence, but God's presence is now manifest upon a people. It is visibly seen, experienced by every individual person. It is a hinge moment in human history. And now what happens after this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? We see the power of Pentecost, that moment, channeled into tangible communities, living one another, loving each other, practicing the way of Jesus together. That was, one of most, that was one of the immediate fruits of Pentecost. Community. Community. And oftentimes we think community is this soft idea. It's this thing that we transcend once we attain a certain measurement of maturity. Community is this thing for new believers when they want to just hang out with other believers and do a kumbaya thing. Once I have like maybe 10 years under my belt, I can transcend this entire mess and just do the me and Jesus thing. Now, it will be terrible for some of you to realize that nowhere in the Bible do we see the phrase personal Lord and Savior. The Bible is more communal than individual. And oftentimes, Paul would say, our Lord, our Lord. This invitation to salvation is an invitation to be part of a community. And we realize in the words of Jesus that to follow him was simultaneously a call to, to of course, bend your whole life towards his lordship, but it's also a call to live in community. The call to follow Jesus is simultaneously a call to follow him and a call to live in community. We think of community as a soft idea, but I I can't help but think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, example as he sees the rise of Nazism, as he sees the rise of cultural compromise, his pastoral instinct and impulse was the people of God need to band together and be woven into this interweb of tight-knit relationships. And I think we all need to carry that impulse within us as we see widespread cultural compromise even in our day-to-day, that we need to come together and to live out what this, this vision that's painted out of scripture, we need to live, live this out 
in our day, in our world today. Now, I'm just going to give you a short three-minute primer on Trinitarian theology. Are you going to be with me? Yes, all right. John chapter 1, verse 18 says this, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself, Jesus, God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him, the Father, known. John chapter 16, verse 14 says, He will glorify me, me meaning Jesus, because it is from me, Jesus, that he, the Spirit, will receive what he, the Spirit, will make known to you, all of you. John chapter 17, verse 4 to 5, it says, I, Jesus, have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you, the Father, gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me, Jesus, in your presence with the glory I had with you, Father, before the world began. Now, in this short uh, three verses, we see this interaction between what we know to be the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we're seeing all through the Gospel of John and all through Scripture is what C.S. Lewis calls the dance. The dance, this relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son, you know, honoring, glorifying the Father. The Father acknowledging and, and glorifying the Son. The Spirit, you know, making much of Jesus. And Jesus talking about Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Such immense value you attribute to the third person of the Trinity. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the dance, this communion of life, of connection, of vibrancy that then spills out over all of creation, the Holy Trinity. Now, it's no wonder why we all, on a fundamental level, desire connection, communion, community, because we have all been made in the image of the one who himself exists as a community. In the beginning, the Bible uh, has this verse in Genesis 1. It says this, Let us make mankind in our own image. And we're introduced into something really unique, right? This is Genesis 1. It's creation of all of, uh, uh, it's creation of our world as we know it. And God would say, let us make mankind in our own image. And so a natural question we ask when we read a verse like that is this, Who is God talking to? Who? Who's around? Now, there are many ways we can read this, right? Some scholars believe that God in that moment is talking to the divine counsel, to heavenly beings who already existed with him in the heavenly realms. But most scholars would actually believe that God was in that moment talking to himself, which Jesus later clarifies that God was talking with, you know, the, the Son, the Spirit, the Father, the Son, the Spirit were having a conversation. And so right here, at the beginning of scripture, we see God himself existing as a community in relationship with one another. Now, this makes absolute sense to me because God is love, right? We all know God to be love, the personification, the embodiment of love itself. And love presupposes some kind of relationship. We see the son honoring the father, the father loving the son, the son honoring the spirit and the spirit doing the will of the father. And so when we choose to live in community, we aren't just following Jesus' example, but we are living in the likeness of whom we have been made in the image in. As one theologian words it beautifully, God is a family who builds family. In Genesis chapter 2, we read this other dynamic that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, were naked and unashamed. Now, I don't think that that has to do with nudity. 
But what we're seeing here is this type of vulnerability, of openness, of being knowingness that God has in mind for all His people. We all desire this vulnerability, this openness, this dynamic where we are known to one another in full extent. And this lasted for all of 22 verses before the fall. And this longing, I like to put it to you, is something that all of our hearts ache for because that is how we have been created. Now, the challenge with talking about community in our world today is that we live in probably one of the most, the loneliest moment in all of human history. Studies show that we are living in what is described as a loneliness epidemic. Loneliness is increasingly viewed as a public health crisis. Robin Dunbar, an anthropologist in England, talks about how in our life, you know, and, and just as a man of human capacity, we only have the capacity, average people, not PD, average people like you and me, have the capacity to be connected to about 150 people in our life, right, at a single time. Now I have 2,000 friends on Facebook. It's not showing off. I have 2,000 friends on Facebook, so I'm like 13 times oversubscribed already. And you want to like factor in my introvertedness and overall hatred of large parties, 20 times probably. Yet, with all of our connectivity and options, statistics show that we are perhaps the generation most plagued by a deep sense of loneliness. The latest mental health study shows one in seven Singaporeans would have struggled with some form of mental disorder in their lifetimes. Uh, the recent study showed that about one in three youth uh, have presented mental health symptoms. Now, you don't have to be a researcher or a doctor to know that this struggle with mental health is often exacerbated by feelings of loneliness. Now, when she was Prime Minister, Theresa May appointed a Minister for Loneliness. The appointment followed a series of alarming reports about the prevalence of loneliness among elderly people. Recently, a problem have, uh, has been expanded to include young people. Research shows that loneliness is a better indicator of early death than smoking, obesity, and excessive drinking. One study found that it is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness increases the likelihood of mortality by 26%. So all this to say, Britney Spears had it right when she said, my loneliness is killing me. She did. What a prophet. <laughs> One writer calls loneliness the greatest irony of the 21st century. The rise of loneliness in a world that's more connected than ever. Mother Teresa has this uh, uh, line where she says this, I have it on the screen, she said, the greatest disease in the West today is not tuberculosis or leprosy, it's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It's not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. It's a hunger for love, as there is a hunger for God. If you think it's a Western problem, I'd like to put it to you, it's a modern problem. First world cities like us, we do face this kind of spiritual poverty. She goes on to say this, that loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. For another quote, uh, uh, it's from a book uh, written by Sherry Turkle called Alone Together. And the subtitle is Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. She says this, We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. 
Isn't that so true? Our network, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok Live, allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. We are rather text than talk. But when technology engineers intermercy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then easy connection becomes redefined as intermercy. Put otherwise, cyber intermercies slide into cyber solitudes. And with constant connection comes new anxieties of disconnection, a kind of panic. This is our world today, a world that is increasingly connected, yet ever so lonely. Now, if the solution is not more connectivity, more options, more mobility, better networking sites, then what is? What is to be the answer that we offer to a world that is connected yet ever so lonely? I can't help but think of that verse from Psalm 68, verse 6, that says this, that God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in families. This idea of being a family, the church community being the family of God, it's not a soft idea, folks. It's so powerful, so needed, and so crucial for our day and for our world. With that, let's look at passage of scripture from Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31. Are you with me, folks? This is the fourth time I'm asking you. Thank you. (laughs) Verse 31 says this in God's word. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, Jesus. Say, a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus then asked, who are my mother and my brothers? It's kind of a rhetorical question, don't you think, right? It was a rhetorical question now, it was a rhetorical question then. Jesus asked, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now notice in this text that for Jesus, his community of disciples, those he lived with, those who walked this journey of discipleship with him, his followers or his apprentices, these people who, in his words, did God's will, he saw them as his family, his family. Now, how does Jesus address God? As father, right? And we heard from PD uh, last week where, you know, if the greatest revelation of God is that of father, then the greatest expression of church is that of a family. Now, Jesus would uh, address his community of believers, his followers, primarily as his family. It's the dominant moniker for what you and I are to him and the community that he desires to build. Now that word brother and sister, it's this single word, uh, adelphoi, it's this Greek word adelphoi. And this term was not just used by Jesus, but by all the writers of the New Testament. It's used a staggering 342 times in the New Testament. And in, by contrast, the term Christian is only used a meager three times. The primary way that God relates to you and I, the primary way that he sees us, the community that he desires to build, it's not a Christian community. It's a community that looks like a family. Now this should paint the kind of picture of the kind of community we are to be folks. We're not just bonded by way of attending the same event. 
We're not just bonded by your membership to this church. Good gosh, some of you need to sign up for membership. Uh, okay, not funny. We're not just bonded that way, but we are bonded through Jesus calling us his brothers and sisters, his family. And we all belong to him. And by extension, we belong to one another. I was privileged many years ago to witness a friend uh, going through adoption uh, in the US. It was a long drawn process. Uh, oh, he was adopting a child, not going through adoption. That would be weird. Uh, but he was adopting a child and it was a long drawn process. Uh, tons of prayer, tons of tears, and he was working through the whole thing. And you know, after you know, almost two years, uh, they finally you know, got all the documentation and then they were in court. It's a beautiful sight. And then once you know, the judge's gavel hit uh, the, the thingamajig, that was all, it was done. And now you know, that boy is now their son. Now they also have two kids of their own. And what happens then, right? It's not just, okay, now these are your new mommy, your new daddy, no. By extension of being in that relationship, in the family, these are now your brothers and sisters. And so when we were adopted into the family of God, when we now see ourselves as adopted as sons of God, you know, belonging to the Father, it's not just this one relationship that we've now entered into, but we have entered into the family of God. By extension, our fellow brothers and sisters are now our family too. Our Delphoi. Now, for context, uh, anthropologists would describe uh, the first century, Jesus's, uh, the time that Jesus lived, as a, uh, it, that, that first century context, Jewish context, as that of a strong group society. Now, this is uh, as, suppo- as opposed to a weak group society or collectivism as opposed to individualism. Now, there's this quote from Bruce Molina, a cultural anthropologist, and he says this, the world in which Jesus and his followers lived was a distinctively strong group culture in which the health of the group, not the needs of the individual, received first priority. And the most important group for persons in the ancient world was the family. Now, what this means is, first of all, that a person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her action, destinies, career, development, and life in general. That is the kind of world that Jesus was talking to. And that is what it means to the followers of Jesus in that day to hear that you are now a family. Family was the most important relationship in their lives. And now you have been grafted into this relationship that carried tremendous weight, but also tremendous responsibility. Now, examples of this kind of collectivistic kind of societies and cultures would be that of Arabic culture, African culture, uh, a pop fiction kind of icon that we'll know is Spock, when he says you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one, right? And it's so far-fetched to us that we made the guy who said that an alien. Uh, now, consider how confronting it is, right, if we were to write ourselves into this, right, that last line. What this means is, first of all, that the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Doesn't that sound so confronting and so unsettling all at the same time? Now, uh, for example, you know, in that day when we talk about collectivistic societies and being a family, for example, one of the, the particular dynamics was that marriage would take a backseat priority-wise uh, to another more important family relationship, and that is the bond between blood brothers and sisters. 
Marriage in traditional societies like the New Testament were almost exclusively contracted to enhance the social standing of families. Uh, the family has the first and final word in any discussion about who marries who in a collectivistic society. While marriage was important for those reasons, the closest same-generation family relationship was not one between husband and wife, but it was the bond between siblings. So we think of the story of Mark Anthony and Octavia and how she left his side to stand with her brother Octavian. Despite letters revealing her deep, immense love and hesitancy to do so, she did so anyway because the closest bond in that day, the bond to which you had the most responsibility toward same-generation bond was not that of husband and wife, but of brothers and sisters. Now, following is a basic summary of all that I've said. First off, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Second thing, the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his or her family. And the third was that the closest family bond was the bond between siblings. Now, why did I paint all that out for you? Because it's really easy for us to hear the words of Jesus and hear his call to all of us as family and take it to mean a different thing. Family in our modern context means a completely different thing where bonds are loose, where there's not this deep sense of commitment to one another. We've seen the fracturing of the family unit in our world today. But to the New Testament audience, when they hear the word family, it meant these three things. It meant deep, immense commitment. It meant prioritizing these people. It meant, uh, that, that it meant it had notions of sacrifice, of giving towards, of loving. We are told to view each other as brothers and sisters in the faith. So it's not your casual sub, bro. It meant so much more than that. Now, this is not just a one-off saying. We see this imagery consistent all through the New Testament. I have uh, some of these verses up. Mark chapter 3, verse 35. People of God referred to as brothers and sisters. Mark chapter 6, verse 9. We are told to refer to God as our Father. Ephesians 1, 5 talks about adoption as sons into a family. The early church is viewed as a household. In 1 Timothy 3, and in Romans and Colossians and Philemon, we read that the early church primarily gathered in homes. Not in auditoriums like this, not in a setting where all of you are just hearing from one speaker, but in homes around a table where they ate together, loved each other, sacrificed, gave toward one another, much like the community they read about in Acts chapter 2. Now, I'm sure uh, many of you have observed that church architecture has shifted over the last millennial. Now, after the legalization of Christianity under the Roman Empire Constantine in the 4th century, uh, we see that many people started professing their faith in Jesus. And so for the early church, they met uh, in settings like this. I have a picture up. This is an ancient mural. And if you can imagine that lock thing in the middle was that of a table. And this is a picture depicting the early church gathering around a table where there's life, on life where they were family to one another. There was food, there was, there was joy, uh, they, were, they were conversing and they were hearing one another and everyone had a voice around the table. Now, after the legalization of Christianity in the fourth century, uh, many cathedrals were built and commissioned and this became public spaces of worship where Christians would gather en masse to come together to worship God, 
to live out the faith. And so um, we have some pictures of cathedrals up and you see from an aerial view, uh, it kind of looks like a cross. Most cathedrals are shaped that way. We think of some uh, cathedrals like the Basilica, Notre Dame, uh, and almost always, or not almost always, always you know, in the center of a cathedral, we would see an altar like the picture on the right. And the altar is where uh, you know, they would receive uh, the sacraments, communion. And for the early church, uh, in the first to the fourth century, uh, communion was done over a table. And more often than not, it was done as a feast, uh, commonly referred to as a love feast. And we see the love feast gradually moving uh, from the fourth century into a sip of uh, a cup and a bite of a bread. Now, uh, then in the 16th century after the Protestant Reformation, we see the church uh, returning to uh, the tenets of faith, to the teaching of the Bible. And this was before you know, books were readily available. This was before you had podcasts and the like. And so if you wanted to hear the Bible, you wanted to hear the teachings of Jesus, you would show up to a church. And so I have a picture of a church that was post-Reformation. You will see that the church's design changed uh, from the 4th century, where instead of having the altar at the center of the church, you had the pulpit in the middle of the church. The pulpit was elevated up high so that the acoustics could work and the voice of the speaker could travel. And so you'll notice that this is a redesign almost from the altar in the middle to the pulpit up high. Now, in modern church, in recent times, we see how music has begun to play a central role in the way we do church, right? Think of you know, uh, how the Jesus People Movement introduced you know, rock band kind of worship music uh, to the church. And this is why you have bands today, folks. It's not something that was done you know, in the 4th century. They didn't have you know, a five-piece band. This is a fairly new development. And so the church architecture shifted from a rectangular box with a pulpit in the center to a more theater style where the stage was at the center of the church. And I have some pictures up. These are very, very big churches. Uh, I show them because, you know, oftentimes, you know, these churches have sloped seatings and that is, where, that is how you're able to see the speaker and everyone is able to hear the music. And though this is a church, uh, but functionally, it's more like a theater. Now, why did I take you through all of this? You know, I just want you to see you know, uh, the gradual shift in terms of the church's priorities uh, over the years. Now, much of the development that I talked about is good. Right? We, see, you know, the, the, uh, we see the Word of God taking a central place. We see music, we, not just music, but worshipping God taking a central place uh, in the church. And you know, there, there's much to be celebrated uh, in the form of progress. But I would argue to say that in our progress, we have gradually lost appreciation and value from some of the foundational values with regard to the church. As the church progressed from the home to the theatre, from the table as a center to the stage at the center. We've seen, you know, in terms of our values and how we relate and posture ourselves towards this thing called the church community, we have seen ourselves move from a family-based community to that which looks more like an audience. Now, when I say audience, I don't mean it in a demeaning sense, but I mean it in the sense that you are here primarily to consume. You are here primarily to benefit. You are here primarily to get something out of this experience. It's an audience. Now, I'm not saying that what we're doing here is absolutely pointless and we should all go home and just eat. I'm not saying that. Some of my most, and I, I would imagine many of you, some of your most profound experiences in God were in settings like this, you know, where the people of God came together, heard the preaching of His Word, and sang together, and God came and met us in a powerful way. 
But I would like to make a case all through this series that that is not the entirety of our faith. It's not. You know, in a setting like this, you know, we can't hear needs, we can't love each other, there is no interpersonal conflict to manage unless you are like seated too close to the person next to you and like you are like jostling for elbow space. That's an interpersonal conflict that you have to solve. But the real deep things and the real issue where life gets on life, where you know, rubber meets the road, it doesn't happen in settings like this. It happens in smaller, tight-knit communities where we see life happen. And that is very much you know, what it means to be the church. And oftentimes, God will use settings like this to form us into a people. And the goal of community is not just that we'll have support groups, as important as that may be. It's not just where we'll have an avenue to dialogue, to debate. It's not just we'll have moments to share our needs. All those are important. But what God actually does in community is that when life gets on life, when we meet with diverse people, when we have to walk with people through issues, where we have to grieve and mourn with people, where we celebrate successes, but also walk through the valleys with one another. What God does in that moment and through walking the journey of community together is that He forms us into a people of love. And we just cannot do that in a setting like this. We just can't. Max Lucado puts it brilliantly when he says this, something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in the sanctuary. In the church auditorium, you see the back of heads. Around the table, you see the expressions on faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock. Around the table, there is time to talk. I want to print this and put it on my dinner table. Yeah. Maybe I can do a bulk order if you're interested. Now, I want to bring this uh, to, a, to a landing, uh, not shortly, I don't want to lie. <laughs> soon. <laughs> like Jesus kind of soon, right? Coming back soon. Yeah. So a question I'd like to uh, land with soonish is this, how do we become a family-based community? How do we recapture a vision of being a family? And of course, you know, we'll take the weeks to pass it out, but I'd like to begin with three shifts that I think we can begin to think about and embrace as a community together. And all of this, you know, I kind of pull from that community in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Now, I'd just like to make a quick observation about this Acts community. Many of times, you know, we read that verse in Acts 2, 42, 47, and we go, that is the early church community. Why are we not this? Why are we not this? Huh? We need to be in homes. We need to, you know, break bread. We need to do all these things. Absolutely, 100% agree with you. But oftentimes, you know, as a kind of like pastoral response, I'll say, hey, why don't you like read down a bit and like see what happens with this ex-community? Many of us don't realize that this is the honeymoon phase of the ex-community. Downline, you know what happens? Ananias and Sapphira, right? Someone steals and then they get struck dead. This is the early church. And so I wish we were like the early church. Really? <laughs> really? Ushers, like, someone just like, felt it because they stole. Um, but down the line, you know, we read that much of what happens in the early church community was they had to deal with all these interpersonal conflict, with like false doctrine, with like leadership, uh, usurp, usurping, you know, and, and all these like things that they had to wrestle with a community. Like we wouldn't have the Pauline letters if there were not conflicts in the church. It was not bright and shiny, right? They, were, they came together, but it was not a convenient, comfortable, or easy thing. 
They had so much that they needed to work through. And oftentimes when we think of community, we think of it being like, I need to, I, like, it's unless I hit a jackpot with the community, they like all the things I like, they do all the things I want to do, they never challenge me, or they challenge me where I want to be challenged. Like, unless I get that, this is just the wrong community, I need to find another one. And we don't realize that oftentimes when we think about community, there's an inherent narcissism at play. Okay, sorry for saying that, but it's true. Thank you. <laughs> now, the first shift I think we need to entertain is this. We need to shift folks from commitment to commitment instead of preference. Commitment instead of preference. Verse 42 says this about the early church community. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. This is super strong language. And the word devotion almost modifies everything that we read in the text because it talks about this level of intensity and intentionality that they had towards being the people of God, towards being a family together. Because for the early church community, the resurrection didn't just change events. It changed the way they lived. So they met together, lived together, worked through the scriptures together, heard each other's needs, along to be the people of God together. Now, if I were to like, just do a mental exercise with you real quick, what comes to your mind when you think of the word church? When you think of the word church, for a good chunk of the world, they think of architecture. They think of a place with an address. For some, you know, we think of um, an event or program or two-hour kind of slot on a Sunday morning, something that you schedule into your calendar. Or perhaps, you know, in light of our current moment in time, we have a more consumptive vision when you think about church. We think of it as like, what did I get out of it? Was the worship leading good? Did they sing the songs that I like to sing? Are they relevant, right? There's a new album out. Did they sing the new album songs? Uh, did Andre kind of like hit it today or was it kind of off form? Uh, you know, did he tell enough jokes? Too many jokes? Yada, 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 yada. Did they serve coffee? Are they welcoming enough? Do we have scones? Now, I may sound unintentionally dismissive here, but of course, you know, we have certain preferences and needs when we are making a choice in regards to our church community. But it can be damaging in the long run when we have a purely consumptive vision of the church. There's this uh, interesting paragraph in uh, Francis Chan's book, uh, Letters to the Church, and he does this exercise with people who go to church and he talks, about, uh, he talks with pastors and uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, he, he, he'll ask the question like, okay, so what made you go to a church? And oftentimes the thing will come out, it's like the worship is good, teaching is good, children's ministry is good, uh, and then they serve coffee, which is like, ooh, good thing. And then he responds with like, okay, but let's look at scripture and all these things that Jesus has called us to be as a church. Hospitable, that we'll love one another, that we'll sacrifice, that we'll live missionally, that needs will be met, that we'll be prayerful, that we'll long for Jesus, spiritual hunger, we'll be a prayerful community. How about all these things? And we realize actually in our world today, when we think of the church, it's purely through a consumptive lens. What do I get out of it? Rather than how is this community faithfully living out the Bible in a compelling way that will call for me to sacrifice, to live outside of my comforts. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his work of satire in the Screwtape Letters, I'm sure many of you are familiar with uh, Screwtape Letters, talks about uh, there's this exchange between you know, Wormwood and his uncle. It says this, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that, quote, suits him until he becomes a taster, a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes a man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. 
Folks, can I just put it to you that the church is not wine for the connoisseur, it's water for those who thirst. One of the great challenges to our culture is that we live in a world of grab ratings and food reviews, don't we? And oftentimes, the church is reduced to an experience where we rate it like we rate stuff on Amazon. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with having an opinion about something. There's nothing wrong with having a preference. There's nothing wrong with having a bent. But you just can't build a New Testament community on it. From scriptures, we know that the community was not built on opinions or preferences or finding a middle. It was built on devotion to God and dying to your preferences, not succumbing to them. Now, just an exercise, you know, when you think of your community, how much time when you when we gather together as a, as a community, you know, small groups, do you actually devote to living out the Christian practices, to the stuff that we read in Acts 2? Or is majority of the time talking about your opinions, what you prefer, what you like, etc. Because folks, in order to do community, we will inevitably, you know, if we want to live out this biblical vision, we will inevitably find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do things that inconvenience us, things that don't come naturally to us, things that cost us, because that is fundamental, foundational to what it means to be a biblical community, a people devoted, not to themselves, but to each other. The next shift we need to see is that we need to move from participation. Uh, We need to not move. We need to move to participation instead of spectatorship. Now, we observe in the text that the community was one that was engaged with their faith in practical ways. I have the text up again. It talks about them you know, being devoted to teaching, there was fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer, generosity, worship, and praise. This was a community that didn't just believe a thing. They put it into practice. They put it into practice. They engaged with their faith in very real ways. Passive faith is an absolute oxymoron to live what it means to be a biblical Christian. It's not just to come here, be on the receiving end and do absolutely nothing. It is to engage with your faith through practices in a community. Now, when I was younger, and many of you were young once, when I was younger, uh, sometimes I would come home late. And my mother has this habit, to which I try to talk her out of it many years. She has this habit of waiting up for us unless we all, until we all come home. And so my mom would just like sit and wait until we all came home. And usually, you know, we were just like home, like, please, mommy, just go to sleep. And you know, I'll get home about like 1 a.m. and I'll come out the lift door and then I'll see, you know, that like little like sliver of light underneath the main door and like, she's home, chialat. Now open the door and then lo and behold, she's sitting there on the couch with like just like one lamp on in the entire house and just like, just like one face light, but then the other face dark and just like, and then usually one of the, the things that she'll say, uh, not the first thing she'll say, but one of the things she'll say is that, hey, don't treat this home like a... <laughs> Do we all have the same mother? <laughs> no, but, but I mean, you know, in essence what she means is that, hey, don't visit this place. You're not tourists here. Like, be at home, you know? Engage, be around, you know, be rooted in this home. And I think that is a kind of similar injunction I'll give you, you know, when it comes to thinking about not church as entity, but church as a family. 
Don't be a tourist here. Don't treat this church like a hotel. But be a family. Practice. Live here. Be here. One pastor wrote uh, his own version of Acts chapter 2 that I'd love to share with you, and I have it up on the screen. It says this, They studied the apostles' teachings when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit in. They prayed when they needed something and they got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectations for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but kept all of their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely reviewed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people and occasionally someone was randomly saved. None of you are clapping because it kind of hits hard, doesn't it? What needs to happen for us to shift from this Acts chapter 2 community to the one that we read the scripture? Now, one of the things that we see as a cultural moment in our day is that the church has been often viewed as a source of entertainment. Church is entertainment culture. And what I mean by that is that instead of seeking to be equipped as disciples of Jesus, we are solely formed in consumers and critics where we give a church experience our ratings and our reviews rather than see themselves as someone who is interwoven and part of the community, what Paul would call a body, members of a body. We expect the church to entertain us, to impress us, to give into our preferences. But let me put it to you folks, entertainment rarely, if ever, transforms. Think of the last time you went to a concert. Like JJ Lin, J Cho, Maroon 5, whatever have you. What do you experience in that concert? You know, perhaps this swelling visuals, this like deep kind of like experience, you know, singing all together. It feels kind of like church, doesn't it, right? I went to a Coldplay concert, I had goosebumps and I was like, God, are you here? You know, it's like very easy to get like conflated, right? You know, you have those like highs and endorphins just rushing. All that good stuff, right? And you're like, wow, you know, this feels so good. And like you're singing with like people on your right and left. You're like, yeah, right. I will try to fix you. Yes, fix me. <laughs> fix me. You're entertained. But after the music kind of dies down and the lights in the stadium kind of lights up and then people start shuffling out, what is the thing that normally happens after you leave an experience like that? For me, the all of three times I've been to a concert, first thing, you think that McDonald's is still open? I'm like very hungry. <laughs> or like a prata would like totally hit right now. Because, you know, entertainment doesn't transform the kind of person you are. You simply enjoy the experience and then you move on to the next thing. And when church becomes entertainment, that is what happens to the people of God. We move from euphoric experience, euphoric moment to the next. And nothing actually happens within us. But a Christian community is to be distinct and different. We are to be transformed by our gathering, by our loving one another. Amen. The last shift that I'd like to propose uh, as we uh, bring this thing to a close is this. We need to move to prefer the collective need instead of the individual want. The collective need instead of the individual want. Verse 44, read this uh, in the text, and that they sold possessions and property and gave to anyone who had need. This is not kind of a kind of like Christian kind of communism, right? They still had autonomy over their own possession. Right? It wasn't just uh, like everyone needs to sell things and we all need to have our equity. No, they still own their stuff. But because of the love of God that was within them, they felt compelled to give each other until no one had need. And this is part of the liturgy that we recite every Sunday, that we will be a community 
where you know we would prefer and we'll give to ones who have needs such that there is no need among us. I've seen this actually played out in the community I was part of. There were 60 of us. There was a community, uh, there was a family that was really struggling with the finances. They had made some poor decisions and then they were struggling with getting groceries every week. And as a community, we banded together. You know, we, 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 we lived simply. You know, there was this call to like, not buy like, $5 coffees, but instead like, make instant one at home, which is us travesty and heresy for some of you. Uh, myself included, myself included. Right? But we live simply such that we could give to this family. And what happened is that over a course of some 25 weeks, their groceries was just provided for again and again and again until they had enough uh, to sustain it themselves. And that is just a small kind of like glimpse to what I believe the early church community was and what I believe we can be. We can be such a community. And I, I don't... I think it's just something that we aspire to. I, I, I think it's something that we need to hold as a distinct vision because it's so needed in the world today. It's, it's important to our witness. It's important to what it means to fully live out, what it means to be followers of Jesus. Now, in our city, we've been socialized to believe that our dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church, and for some of us, even our family. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. Now, in his book, uh, Multiplying Missional Leaders, uh, Mike Brand, this brilliant theologian, uh, identifies several areas of capital or resources that we own as people living in modern society. And they are spiritual, physical, financial, intellectual, and relational. And he says this, that when we let the world define and shape our vision for life, oftentimes our priorities look like this. Eh? This is the good one. Oh, okay, I don't have the bad one. Okay, just take my word for it. <laughs> the bad one, right? We, we tend to structure it this way. First, financial. Second, physical. Third, intellectual. Fourth, relational. And fifth, spiritual. Yes, this is the bad one. Mm, all right, this one. And what he says uh, tends to happen is that, uh, next slide, we give our lives to get ahead financially. We give our lives, this is priority, that, that, that takes the top place in our life. And then we work, spend, accumulate debt, and then repeat the cycle again and again. We obsess over our bodies and how we present ourselves physically. We devote ourselves to our clothes, our appearance, and our health in, in almost religious ways. And then we get an education so we can put letters after our names. We study and debate, form opinions. And then only after we have devoted ourselves to these pursuits, we give whatever leftovers we have to our family. And if there's anything after that, we care for our souls. This is how, what happens when we let the world define and dictate our vision for life. And then he argues that we must reverse the order in which we spend our capital. He talks about how a life of devotion will look like this. First, spiritual, relational, physical, intellectual, and then financial. He says when we do so, what happens? Next slide. We create time to steward emotional energy and bear one another's burdens. We use our strength and energy to serve one another in practical ways. We make sure we get enough rest so we can be fully present to what is happening in the lives of those around us. How many of you had more than six hours of sleep? Mm, all right, sleep for church, okay? <laughs> we eat and exercise to steward our bodies as holy temples. And then we seek ways to steward what we have, practicing generosity, not letting the desire for more choke out the word God wants to do in our lives. And he ends off his book with this saying, 
a church filled with people like this, who are not just living for themselves, but spending themselves on behalf of one another, is a church with people who have emotional energy to listen without distraction, time to walk others through the mess of addiction or divorce, commitment to invest in teenagers trying to make sense out of faith and life, and margin to savor and celebrate the things that are often lost in the frenzy of modern life. A church like this is unlike anything our culture has truly seen. I'd like to put it to you that community is not just a thing of personal enjoyment. It's what actually lends credibility to our witness in our world. And didn't Jesus say this, that by this they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And one of the primary ways we witness to our world, to our culture today, is by the way we live together. By this deep interwoven web of relationships called the church, called the family of God. Tim Keller in his book about how to reach the West again or how to reach secular culture talks about how oftentimes when the church engages with culture, we do it in one of three ways. Either we seek to dominate culture or we seek to withdraw from culture and just be distant or we capitulate, we compromise with culture, we just give in to the world's norms. But he proposes a fourth way to which we engage in culture and calls it faithful presence. And that is being in the world but not of it, being salt and light. And I can't help but think that that is Bonhoeffer's example. Being a community of people in the midst of the culture all around them. And that's what we are to be as the people of God, a compelling, distinct, well-differentiated community. You know, uh, back in the day, before I had kids, a kid, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, back in the day, uh, Amy and I love to watch movies. We love to watch movies. I watched like every movie conceivable, uh, and that was, that was the primary way we did. We just went to movie and. Uh, I remember one experience we had was uh, we went to a movie together and uh, we typically like to get there early uh, and uh, just have a popcorn and just settle in. And uh, there was one experience where we were just sitting there and we were going to watch this movie. And you know, they just like have all these like previews and trailers come up, right? And I think there's just some like cinematic genius that goes into like editing trailers because it's like short, it's like 15, 20 seconds. But at the end of each trailer, we go like, whoa, that is good. I want to watch that. Then the next trailer comes up, like, whoa, that is good. I also want to watch that. And then we were just like, keep, we kept saying that over and over again and to, until we were like, okay, we're going to like drop like probably two, three hundred dollars on movie tickets in the next like two months. And that's like something like genius, right? You know, we see the trailer, we see the preview and we go like, wow, I need to watch that. I think in many ways, the church community is the preview of the kingdom of God. How we live our lives, how we interact with our world, how we love one another, it's a preview to a watching world that there is more to life than the culture around it. There's more to life than giving in to our prime base kind of like desire. There's more to life than this. There is this thing called the kingdom of God in which we find life and all its fulfillment, joy, everlasting joy in God. And that's what we endeavor to discover together, folks, as a community. What does it mean to live life together well such that the world may go there is something upon this community and I need to know why. Leslie Newbegin has this line, right? Live in such a way to which it provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. That is what we endeavor to discover through life together. Can I, stand? Can I invite you to stand?
Are you all well, folks? You know, can, can I just be very honest for a sec? Not that you have a choice. Uh, I, have to, I have a mic. I've, I've um, you know, we of course planned this series and we were doing this series uh, and we planned to do it uh, a few months ago. And uh, all through this week, I was writing the message and I found it you know, very difficult to pen the words that I just uh, read to you. Because I almost feel like this tangible ache in my heart you know, when I think of community. I think of like where we are as a church and I think of uh, the last two and a half years especially, all they've gone through. And I think one of the things that we want to acknowledge, first of all, as pastors and as uh, your leaders is that our community has taken a hit over the last two and a half years. Uh, you know, with the distance I've experienced and perhaps disappointment, disillusionment and hurt, and perhaps you, know, you expected some people to be there for you in you know, tough times and they weren't there. Perhaps you expected me to be there for you in a very real way, but I wasn't. Uh, and you're hurt and disappointed. It's saddened by that. And if I can be very honest with you, uh, the last year has been a very lonely and hard year. And, and one of the things I have to acknowledge is the ways that I have been hurt by this community. And I think it's normal. I don't think it's, it's, it's a statement on where you have fallen short or where I have fallen short. But in life, we realize that you know, the expectations we carry to our community is something that we have to gradually die to. Bonhoeffer has this line where he talks about how a person who carries their ideals of community or holds on to their ideals of community becomes the very destroyer of that community. Because there is no ideal community. And being community, being with one another, being in family means that we're inevitably disappointed, we're inevitably hurt. We inevitably need to forgive and we inevitably need to heal. And you know, before we begin this exploration, I just want to acknowledge that community has been hard over the last two and a half years. And some of you are here because you're reeling from hurt from your previous community. And so, you know, just as something that, that feel that we are to do, you know, even as we begin this exploration and before we begin a dive into like a biblical vision and all that good stuff, you know, it is to ask that God will heal us for where there's been brokenness and hurt and pain, that God would, in His mercy and kindness, bring healing. For where there's disappointment and disillusionment, that He will cause us to have a renewed vision once again. And I think, you know, if we would do a word play with the word disillusionment, you know, it means, you know, dying to illusion. And sometimes we have these illusions about community and God brings clarity as to what things and how things are really to be. And so let's take a moment in time with eyes closed and with heads bowed and uh, even in reflection of the last couple of years and how you've experienced community and how it has been for you and perhaps things that you have carried in your heart that there's an ache, you know, and there's a pain. Thank you, Jesus. So Jesus, we, we thank you for your words and we thank you for this call of community and how it's not just something that uh, we, we look to uh, in light of our preferences and our wants, but it's how you've called us to live. People together 
diverse in our ways, unique as we are, broken, but called together. But called together. But we just want to acknowledge that last couple of years for our faith community hasn't been easy. As we experience distance, as we have disappointed one another, as we have our hopes deferred, God, we recognize that, that for many of us, our, our vision of community has been marred, it's been tainted, it's been devalued in some ways. And Jesus, we ask that even now that you would cause us to reimagine, re-envision and recapture your vision for community. We look at the words of Paul even now that talks about how we ought to, in all our relationships, have the mindset of Christ. God, we ask that you give us the mind of Christ even toward one another. How you see us, how you love us, and how you call us to be with one another. We long for your mind, O oh God, and we know that this is not something that we simply enter into through an intellectual exercise, but it's something that the Spirit is to bring illumination and clarity. So Spirit of God, we just yield to you and open our hearts and our minds to you once again. We say, God, that even as we explore these themes over the next few weeks, why don't you do a deep work, not just in our minds, but in our heart. For where our heart has grown cold toward one another, stir up a flame once again. Stir up a flame once again. For where our love has been unrequited and we feel a kind of disappointment, God, meet us in a tender way. Lord, you have walked that same road of suffering, of unrequited love. You know what it means. And so God, we ask that you would bring comfort where the comfort is needed and bring wisdom and clarity where wisdom is needed. And God, we say we want to be a people that abandon our preferences and live committed to one another. We want to be a people that not just spectate from the side but contribute towards the body. And we want to be a people that don't just prioritize our own individual wants but long to see how we can contribute and sacrifice for the collective good. We want to be a people that live into that vision that we read about in Acts 2. So God, we ask that you help us, teach us, guide us, cause us to live in a way beyond our own strength. We need your grace, Jesus. So God, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this moment in time. We pray that you continue to speak to us through the week. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go back to worship together.